Thank you for joining me for another episode of My Story Living with Lupus Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on this Monday, March 13th, 2023. Today's episode is about lupus and how... The U.S. should expect more lupus cases based on racial, ethnic diversity growing. Also, has has your rheumatologist or your PCP, primary care physician, ever mentioned about the importance of replacing the collagen in your body? If not, stay tuned. I'm going to be talking about it. So you know what I want you to do. That's right. Grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea. And to my listeners late at night, grab your favorite glass of wine. And come on and join the conversation. Right here on My Story, Living with Lupus Podcast. Thank you for joining me and also thank you for my new listeners on Spotify. We're going to be talking about collagen now. Now, as I stated earlier, has your rheumatologist or PCP, primary care physician, ever stated that you needed to be on collagen supplements due to the fact that you have an autoimmune illness. Well, I'm going to explain what collagen is to you. Collagen is the most abundant protein in our body. It accounts for about 30% of its total protein. Collagen is the primary building block of our body skin, muscle, bones, tendons, ligaments, and other connective tissues. It's also found in our organs, blood vessels, and intestinal lining. Proteins are made from amino acids. The main amino acids that make collagen are proline, hydroxyproline. These amino acid groups together to form protein fibrils in a triple helix structure. Our body also needs the proper amount of vitamin C, zinc, copper, magnesia to make the triple helix. Now, what does collagen do? Well, collagen's main role is to provide structure, strength, and support throughout our bodies. Their specific roles include helping fibroblasts to form in our dermis, 
That's the middle skin layer, which helps new cells grow. Collagen also plays a role in replacing dead skin cells. It provides a protective covering for organs. It gives structure, strength, elasticity to our skin. And it helps our blood to clot. Now, there are different types of collagen. Some 28 types of collagen has been identified. They differ by how the molecules are assembled, the cell components that are added, and where the collagen is used in our body. All collagen fibrils have at least one triple helix structure. The main five types of collagen and what they do are type 1. This type makes up 90% of our body's collagen. Type 1 is densely packed and used to provide structure to skin, bones, tendons, and ligaments. Type 2. This type is found in elastic cartilage, which provides joint support. Type 3. This type is found in muscles, arteries, and organs. Type 4. This type is found in the layers of our skin. And type 5, this type is found in the cornea of our eyes, some layers of skin, hair, and tissues of placenta. Now, can um, well, let me put it this way. Can I tell if my body's collagen level is decreasing? Collagen can't be measured, for instance, in a blood test. But there are signs that your collagen level is decreasing. These signs include skin that wrinkles, hollowing in and around your eyes and face, shrinking, weakening muscles, and muscle aches, stiffer, less flexible tendons and ligaments, joint pain, or osteoarthritis due to worn cartilage, loss of mobility due to joint damage or stiffness, gastrointestinal problems due to thinning of the lining of our digestive tract and problems with blood flow. Now, it also depends on your lifestyle habits which can damage collagen, such as smoking, exposure to ultraviolet light, eating too much sugar, and refined carbohydrates. We need to reduce, if you smoke, quit. Eating too much sugar, quit. Exposure to ultraviolet light, 
Too much sunlight reduces collagen production and causes collagen to break down more rapidly. Ultraviolet sunlight causes wrinkles, so it's best to avoid excessive sun exposure and always wear what? Sunscreen. SPF 30 and higher when you're outside. Now, what diseases and other factors damage collagen? Autoimmune diseases. Our body's immune system attacks its own tissue and this can damage collagen. Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, dermatomyositis, and scleroderma are autoimmune connective tissue diseases known to damage collagen. Genetic mutations can also damage collagen. Collagen's construction errors result in conditions such as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Collagen levels also decline naturally with age. Stay with me and we'll talk about what you can do to improve skin collagen loss to slow down the signs of aging. We all are going to age, but the most important thing that we can do to improve skin collagen loss to slow down the signs of aging is to wear sunscreen every day. You know, my um, dermatologist tells me all the time, are you, well, asks me all the time, are you wearing your sunscreen every day? Even when I'm in the house, I have it on. So we have to wear sunscreen every day. A exposure to ultraviolet light damages collagen. Use products with a sunscreen protection factor SPF of 30 or higher. Wear a wide brim hat, sunglasses with UV protection and lightweight long sleeve shirts and pants while outside. Looking for clothing with an ultraviolet protection factor label for extra protection. Avoid tanning beds. Eat a well-balanced diet like the Mediterranean diet, which is loaded with vegetables, beans, whole grains, nuts, fruits, and a moderate amount of seafood, meats, poultry, dairy, and eggs. Now, how is collagen used in the fields of medicine and cosmetics? Collagen can be broken down and converted and absorbed back into our bodies. It has a wide range of uses in medicine and cosmetics. 
Collagen used for medical purposes comes from humans, cows, pigs, or sheep. Uses include dermal fillers. Collagen injections can fill out shallow depressions in our skin, such as lines and wrinkles. Wound dressings. Collagen helps wounds heal by attracting new skin cells to the wound. Periodontics. Collagen acts as a barrier to prevent fast-growing gum tissue from developing into a wound in a tooth, giving the tooth cells the time they need to regenerate. Vascular prosthetics. Donor collagen tissue grafts have been used to reconstruct arteries help regenerate peripheral nerves and make blood vessel prosthesis. Now you can eat collagen rich foods to increase collagen levels in your body. That includes vitamin C, which is found in oranges, strawberries, bell peppers, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and potatoes. Proline which is found in mushrooms, cabbage, asparagus, peanuts, wheat, fish, egg whites, and meats. Copper is found in liver, lobster, oysters, shiitake mushrooms, nuts, and seeds, leafy greens, tofu, and dark chocolate. Zinc. Zinc is found in oysters, red meat, poultry, pork, beans, chickpeas, nuts, broccolis, green leaf vegetables, whole grains, and milk products. But what do you do when you can't eat the majority of what I just read off like I can? Um, I've been diagnosed with celiac and you guys know I've been diagnosed with gastroparesis. Gastroparesis simply means that part of my stomach is paralyzed. So what I do, I take a collagen supplement. Now, the next thing is collagen peptides. You may be saying, well, what is collagen peptides? Collagen peptides are small pieces of animal collagen. Collagen can't be absorbed in a whole form. It has to be broken down into smaller peptides or amino acids. Oral collagen supplements come in the form of pills and powders. They usually contain two to three amino acids. They are sold as collagen peptides or hydrolyzide collagen. Collagen peptides are absorbed through our gastrointestinal tract. 
Now, as far as research regarding collagen and its effectiveness, there has been a lack of randomized um, controlled trials of dietary supplements. The gold standard to test the effectiveness of medications. The few such studies that have been done have found that collagen peptides are possibly effective for improving skin hydration, skin elasticity. It's also a possibility um, that it is effective for relieving pain and improving joint function in people with knee osteoarthritis. Important things to know about the science behind supplements. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, doesn't regulate collagen supplements. They don't require the double-blind, placebo-controlled, random trials that medication do to be approved. The manufacturers of supplements don't have to prove that their products are safe or effective before putting them on the market. Many of the studies conducted with supplements are funded by the supplement industry or the study authors have financial ties to the supplement industry. It's not known if collagen supplements will do what the label promotes. Finally, keep in mind that ingesting collagen peptides from foods or supplements can't be directed to where you want them to be used. Our body uses these peptides for whatever it needs, be it collagen or protein. And just to let you know that my physicians um, told me it was fine for me to take collagen supplements. And I have now been on collagen supplements for about um, two months. Have I seen any improvement in my pain? Yes. Um, have I seen any improvement far as um, joint pain? Yes. So, as always, check with your physician before taking any medication or supplements. But ask your doctor about the benefits of collagen. Have that open conversation regarding this. Information provided on this podcast regarding collagen comes from the Cleveland Clinic. U.S. should expect more lupus cases as racial ethnic 
diversity grows. Study finds doubled rates over 40 plus years. Incidence rates for a systemic lupus erythematosus, better known as SLE, almost doubled in Olmsted County, Minnesota from 1976 to 2018, according to a new study with the investigators suggesting that the area's changing demographics at least partially explain the trend. From 1976 to 1988, the age-adjusted incident of SLE stood at 3.32 per 100,000 population, reported Dr. Ali Garcia of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and colleagues. The rate then increased in successive periods, hitting 6.44 per 100 by 2009 to 2018. It was probably not coincidental that the county's racial ethnic mixed change over this time frame from essentially 100% white in 1976 through 1988 to 5% Hispanic, 16% Asian, and 9% Black in the most recent period. Rates for these non-white groups were higher across the entire study period than for non-Hispanic whites, as had been found in previous studies. If that's really the explanation and the authors had no others, the findings have implications for the nation as a whole. As the U.S. population grows more diverse, we might continue to see an increase in the incidence of SLE. The U.S. Census Bureau has projected that non-white Americans will top 50% of the overall U.S. population in a little more than 20 years. As many readers know, Olmstead County is where Rochester is located and has become a laboratory for epidemiology logical research. Nearly all healthcare providers in the county are linked to the central database, allowing researchers to establish incidence and prevalence rates and track trends for any disease that might be found among its population that grew from about 90,000 in 1976 to 153,000 in 2018.
In conclusion to Dr. Garcia and colleagues' study, they searched the database for ICD-9 and 10 codes for lupus-related conditions, including the systemic and cutaneous forms, as well as lab results indicative of lupus, such as positivity for anti-nuclear antibodies. Over the entire period, 188 new cases were identified because this was a relatively small number. It was not really possible to determine conclusively whether lupus severity or mortality had changed substantially. There was no indication that mortality had improved, but a trend toward reduced severity was noted. One other feature that did change was that the proportion of new onset SLE cases among men increased from 7% to 22%. Even so, the incidence among both sexes increased. Now, there were limitations to the study, which included the possibility of inaccurate records and the use of a European League Against Rheumatism, American College of Rheumatology criteria to ascertain diagnosis, which might have excluded some legitimate cases. So what are your thoughts on the U.S. should be expecting more lupus cases based on racial ethnic diversity. Older lupus patients need follow-up after hospital discharge. Medicare beneficiaries 65 and older with lupus face dramatically higher mortality when they received no follow-up care during the month after a hospital stay, researchers found. Death rates within 30 days of discharge was 65% higher in the absence of 30-day follow-up compared with older lupus patients who did receive it. According to Christy M. Bartels, MD, of the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Those who had follow-up outpatient care within the 30-day post-discharge window also were 27% more likely to be readmitted or seen in an emergency department. That finding was a bit of, of a surprise Bartell's group hypothesized that follow-up 
would predict longer time without acute care use as seen in studies of other conditions. While acute care visits after discharge are often considered adverse outcomes, suggesting inadequate care during the initial admission. It appears that they helped keep older lupus patients alive, at least during the study's 30-day window for analysis. Lack of follow-up care was associated with factors, including residents in rural areas or poor sections of cities. The results indicate a need for better ambulatory access or outreach to lupus patients, particularly those residing in rural and disadvantaged neighborhoods. Medicare data covering beneficiaries hospitalizations during January through November 2014 for a 20% random sample where the study's basis were the study's basis, I should say. This sample included 8,606 hospitalizations with a lupus code, including 5,403 individual patients. 1,663 had multiple admissions. Two-thirds of the sample were disabled as their primary reason for Medicare enrollment, and half were also on Medicaid. As a result, only 39% of patients were 65 or older. About half the under 65 group had no follow-up ambulatory care within 30 days of discharge. In those 65 and older, about 60% did have follow-up care. Patients living in small towns or very rural areas about 30% less likely to have follow-up compared with urban or suburban patients. The impact of neighborhood economic deprivation was smaller with an odds ratio of 0.98. But this was the statistically significant at 14 days and just short of at 30 days. Within 30 days of discharge, the following occurred in the total sample. 34.2% visited the ER. 
22.4% were readmitted for treatment. 4.9% were readmitted for observation. And 1.3% died. However, the 30-day death rate was 3.9% for those 65 or older with no follow-up compared with 0.7% for those who did have some type of ambulatory visit after discharge. Mortality in those younger than 65 was also increased with lack of follow-up care. 1.2% versus 0.5%. But this fell short of statistical significance because there were many fewer deaths overall in this age group. Limitations to the study included the reliance on administrative data And perhaps most importantly, the restriction to 30 days of follow-up after discharge. Also, only outpatient visits with primary care providers or rheumatologists were counted as follow-up care, not those with other specialists, such as nephrologists. As well, the researchers had no data on patients' lupus severity or treatments given during admission. Further studies should examine multi-payer cohorts, especially in younger patients with lupus, and evaluate associations with mortality risk in cohorts with a greater number of outcome events. I like to share with you guys what I go through on my journey of um, dealing with this illness called lupus and all the goodies that it brings. I don't regret anything that I have gone through in my life dealing with this illness. Um, Maybe my story can just help one person that my job is done. These are the cards that I have been dealt and I'm playing my hand each and every day. For the last month, I have been seriously ill. Um, I lost close to about um, 15 to 20 pounds. Uh, My lab work is... um, bad. I'm just going to say it is bad. Um, I have to go tomorrow, which is Tuesday, 
to the hospital for testing on my heart. But if I can give hope and inspiration to just one person out there, my life is not in vain. I want you to never regret a day in your life because good days give you happiness and bad days give you experience and the strength to keep moving forward. I really appreciate and thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope that this episode, as I do with all my episodes, brings you a little more knowledge about lupus and how to become your own best advocate. So, until next time, I'm Susan Hendricks for my story, Living with Lucas Podcast. I want you to have the most and best safe, blessed week. And you'll be hearing from me. And who knows, you may be hearing from me next week. So stay tuned. And once again, thank you to all my new listeners.